Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. On this episode, we are joined by Julie Howell, a physical therapist and certified hand therapist who has contributed significantly to the field of hand therapy through publications and teaching on the use of relative motion orthoses. We discuss the concept of relative motion, how this was initially used in treating extensor tendon repairs, but is now being utilized for protection, assessment, exercise, and adaptive techniques. We also explore a variety of diagnoses and instances where patients might benefit from a relative motion extension or flexion orthosis. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Julie. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast this evening. And we have Julie Howell with us this evening to discuss the big topic of relative motion orthoses. And I'm going to give the mic over to her and let her tell us a little bit about what she's doing professionally. Julie? Yeah, thanks, Steph. For the last several years, I've been working on the Journal of Hand Therapy special issue for relative motion. I'm no longer seeing patients in the clinic formally. I see people informally, especially on the pickleball court with lots of hand and shoulder injuries. So that's kept me fairly busy. I now live in Michigan, which has been a big change because most of my career, I was on the West Coast in Oregon. So no longer in practice, but working and collaborating with different people around the world to publish this special edition and help them get their ideas on relative motion out there for all of you to be able to read more about relative motion and its uses. Yeah, it's definitely a big topic. I know it's a orthoses that I use frequently for many different diagnoses. It's just kind of transitioned over the years. Um, but where did the idea for the relative motion come from? The relative motion concept was started by Wendell Merritt in Richmond, Virginia. And I had the good fortune of practicing, going to graduate school there and becoming involved in that project. He, Maureen Hardy, and Sandy Robinson initiated the idea in the late 70s and then brought it into clinical practice in the 80s. And then it was used primarily for extensor tendon management, zones five and six for the fingers. It was quite an innovation and still is because at that time, extensor tendons were not moved at all. They were immobilized for six, eight weeks and then taken out of the cast and then try to reclaim the motion in the fingers. So we can all imagine what became of those patients and how much time we had to spend with them therapy. So moving tendons was a big deal in the 80s, controlled active motion. About that same time, Roz Evans and Burkhalter were working on their ideas of using dynamic orthoses to control the motion through radians. They used a formula to determine how far to move the finger at that time. So those were two ideas that started in the 80s, actually. So that dates me. <laughs> so it's not really a new idea. It's just becoming a little more recognized, I think, at this point. And there are other uses for it currently. And I think in the future, there'll be even more uses for it. 
what other diagnoses are you seeing this being used with? Quite a few. I think before you're talking about it, and there's two different things. There's the relative motion concept, which is where this all began in the 80s. It was to take a single muscle that drives four tendons on the fingers and place them in relatively different positions based on the position of the MCP joint. And that's a very important concept to get. And so that was basically taking tension off of the repair, but allowing enough excursion so the repaired tendon didn't stick down. That concept has been applied to extensor tendons, zones four through eight currently. And there's a mountain of evidence that shows how well this works. Then out of just practical use, as we started using the orthotic, back then it was called a splint, the relative motion splint, we started saying, well, why can't we use it for this or that? Or, you know, if you're treating a trigger finger, you could do the same thing. Put the finger in relative difference to limit excursion. It's used to any imbalance in the finger that you think it would apply for. I've used it with RA patients to help alignment. If you go to the scoping review, which Melissa Hurth and I were the primary and secondary authors on, that will give you a list of, at the time in 2016, what we chose people from around the world that were clinical experts, I guess you would say, in using relative motion because it was really being used more in Europe and Australia and New Zealand than it has been here in the U.S. It's just been recently, maybe in the last 10, 15 years, become more popular here. So there's all kinds of uses. And in the scoping review, you'll see some articles, case management cases that use relative motion extension or relative motion flexion. So you mentioned just a little bit ago, the anatomy of why this works and how we can utilize it. Can we dive a little bit deeper into what you just mentioned, both the relative motion extension, but also the relative motion flexion and why why we can use it for both. We can place a finger in relative extension relative to the other digits as well as flexion and get the results that we're looking for. Well, I think it was originally it was an idea. There was no basis for it other than knowing your anatomy and how you can unload a tendon, knowing that the repairs would stand up to limited controlled motion. So relative motion extension means you're putting the MCP joint of the involved or involved digits in more extension than the counterparts. You can put all four fingers in or you can put three fingers in. Two fingers is not going to do the job because that would be more like a buddy strap almost. And you just can't control the relativity. With extensor tendons, zones four through eight, pretty much in the survey that we did internationally, most people are using 15 to 20 degrees of relative MCP joint extension. We started out originally 25 to 30 degrees. And remember, originally it was only for zones five and six, then it expanded to zones four and then seven, eight. Most of the literature will talk to you about one or two digit repairs 
we're still hoping for that rare case where a therapist and surgeon are comfortable putting their repairs of three fingers into this. So that would be something that would be new to the literature. There are just very few, if any, of those at this time. So am I on point with you? Are there other things you want to know about? Well, I think maybe even then speaking to relative flexion and the uses for that as well. Yeah, I think your imagination is the limit. So you just have to try it. And if I can back up a little bit, the pencil test, which we're all familiar with, is something that Don Lalonde has really popularized. I think therapists that I worked with when we first started relative motion used the pencil to hold the patient until we got the orthotic made. So, but he is such a good advocate of relative motion that everybody's hearing Don Juan, and he uses it in his pain testing of fingers to do that. But relative motion flexion, currently, I did uh, with Steve Henry in Texas, Dr. Henry, we did 10 cases. They were his cases. I happened to be down at a meeting and he started to present this and I was not going to let him out of the room till we talked a little bit more about <laughs> these 10 cases that needed to be seen in the literature. Because back in the 80s, when I was in private practice next door to Dr. Merritt, we did try relative motion flexion with flexor tendons, but at that time, the repairs were not strong enough. And so we got really nervous about that and decided, you know, this is pushing the issue a little bit. But now we have repairs that we can use the relative motion and the work with the 10 cases has kind of shown us that. There's currently in the UK, I'm a consultant with, they're using the NIH, they have a grant, it's called FIRST. It's several therapist groups that are, it's a huge study that are comparing the short Manchester with relative motion flexion and the Norwich regime for zones one and two FTP repairs. Again, going back to the concept of relative motion, that you have one muscle with the profundus tendons. So you can put them at a relative length disproportionate so that you can protect the repair tendon, but still get the excursion required. So, so far that's working well. You kind of alluded to the fact that your imagination can be, you can run wild with it. And I think we've seen that the relative motion flexion and extension orthoses, we've seen they've kind of become a bit of a workhorse. I treat pediatric patients and we've started utilizing it over the last several years for our patients with camptodactyly, which is very similar to some of the research that is being done on boutonniere contractures as well. And so we'll... Neuvatrons. Yes. Oh, that as well. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing that with more of our adolescent patients that we can get them in an orthosis and they're fine to wear it at school. And we're seeing great results for that patient population as well. Wonderful. Let me ask you this, because this is going to be the first question any surgeon asks you. (laughs) (laughs) It's so small, they're going to take it off. How can you trust a kid to keep that on? Do you have any problems with that? I 
actually did get to hear you when you were here in Texas at our Texas Society meeting, and that which was fantastic. And your lecture that was just on relative motion extension, your lecture that was just on relative motion flexion. And I walked away going, we need to be doing this. This is a patient population that we can be utilizing this for. And I went to the surgeon and I said, we can do this and I want to do this. And she was all on board for it. And I will say most of the patients... They're a little bit older in the group that we're primarily using this with. It's more our older adolescents, teenagers with Camptodactyly. So they're a little bit more trustworthy. They're a little bit more adherent as opposed to some of our little kids that we've tried it on who you're right. It's going to go flying across the room and they're not going to keep it on, but we try it. It's worth trying. Yeah. Little kids wiggle out of everything though. Exactly. They're little (laughs) Houdinis and they figure out a way to come out of anything. Yes. Yes. Well, so here I am. I'm going to put my Journal of Hand Therapy guest editor hat on. It's like, yes. we, we need some cases in the literature using it for camptodactyly. It would go nice with any Dupatron patients that you're using it with, because that's missing from the literature right now. That'd be great. Good. Well, I'm glad you were there and you heard that. Yes. <laughs> yes. That was a fun meeting. It was. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah. So the other use is the boutonniere for relative motion flexion. And that's something that really Dr. Merritt is really advocating strongly. We don't really exactly understand how it's working. If you look at the special issue, there will be two articles. Dr. Merritt, we asked him to do a commentary and to go through it. And he did a great job on it. And then Gwen Von Streen and an anatomist colleague of hers did an anatomy breakdown on it. So we have two separate articles trying to understand how it might work, but we don't really know for sure the mechanism, but you see it working when you correct your camptodactyly patients. When you have passive range of motion beyond active and you put them in the pencil test and they extend their IP joints, it's beautiful. It's just rebalancing the finger. And I think patients... They see it immediately and they're amazed. They go, wait a minute, I haven't been able to do this. And I think using that pencil test too can get a little bit of buy-in as well because I can show them and say, look, if we just do this just a little bit, if we put your big knuckle in a little bit of flexion, see what you can do now. And I feel like we can get a little bit more buy-in to say, okay, wear this orthosis and it'll do the exact same thing for they you. They see it. Yeah. And then they believe it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I will also tell you that another use for relative motion extension, a group of Australian therapists to have an article in the journal coming out using it for those patients that have hypermobile PIP joints that have a mallet finger. And they've been using relative motion extension for those patients to correct that hypermobile PIP and try to reclaim the balance between the IP joints. So so now we've covered all zones of Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And I guess I need to go all anticipation of reading that article. But are they doing some sort of a cap mallet orthosis along with and then just putting a relative motion orthosis on it as well? Yep. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I actually just did that with somebody. They had a proximal phalanx fracture, kind of went undiagnosed, so has significant PIP 
flexion limitations. So they have good extension, but they don't have good flexion. And what is happening as the last orthosis they had by another therapist that is in, not in the facility that I'm in, put them in a PIP extension orthosis, but left DIP free to allow the ORL to continue to not lose motion or to stop it from losing motion. But now what is happening, they almost have hyperflexion, if you could say that. So when they go to make the fist, the only thing that goes is DIP flexion. So because all the force is now going to the DIP joint, so I put them in a partial relative motion flexion orthosis, but added a DIP cap. So I mobilized the DIP, hyperextended the MP joint to try and facilitate motion at the PIP joint, if that makes sense. So relative motion extension splint. Yes. The MCP joint in more extension. Extension. And yeah. then block the DIP joint. So you shuttled all the motion to the PIP. Right. Okay. Right. And that was just kind of I'm like, okay, this isn't working. That motion when we go into flexion is just not happening because all the force is now going to the DIP joint. So I kind of used that method and that was just two days ago. So I know, you see, know. it's your imagination. <laughs> That's all it takes. It's just, yeah. And even the patient was like, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know why anybody else didn't think of that. <laughs> and I was like, well, we just need to problem solve and figure out like what's working, what's not working, and then try to redirect the forces. So we'll see what happens. Let me ask you, did you use the relative motion on three fingers or four fingers? I actually did two fingers because it was the index. Okay. You were able to get that balance. So that would not necessarily be a protective. So we've got three categories, protective, exercise, and adaptive. And I'm starting to call, which will be in that journal articles, to the pencil test assessment. So we're using it as an assessment tool as well. So you can decide whether or not you need a relative motion if it's going to work. So you did two fingers. When you do your camptodactyly, Kara, do you use four fingers or three? Or is it dependent on where it is and what? Yeah, it's kind of dependent on typically we're seeing it in the small finger. So we're doing sometimes two. We can get away with that. Sometimes three. So you're doing the ulnar digits or are you balancing it with the index? Balancing it with the index. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Balancing it with the index. So that would be a four finger. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Okay. I'm holding up so they can see <laughs> what, what I'm doing with my pencil. Okay. Okay. All right. Yes. Because it is, it is confusing, but it's important to use those kind of when you're talking with people to qualify it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. You're using assessment, exercise, or protection. So that is good to clarify that. Yeah. So if you were doing it for protection, we know that extensor tendons right now, if you're doing zones four proximally, that you need at least 15 degrees of relativity. You can have more. That's fine. It's not going to harm anything. We had up to 30 when we started and it was fine. But you don't necessarily have to get that degree of relativity, maybe with camptodactyly, or if you're doing it for your exercise purpose to block that joint. So that's the key, I think, to understanding that it doesn't have to be when you're using it for those other purposes other than 
protection. And I think that's what we're finding is we're trying to find that what angle of the MP joint can we achieve that extension without putting them in excessive or not enough. And so taking those measurements of where things are at and when do we see that extension and at what angle of the MP joint can we get it at? And that's where we're fabricating it. Whether you're doing it for a trigger finger, whether you're doing it for anything, use the pencil test first. And another article in this journal will show you how to modify a pencil, make it thicker, thinner, separate articles so that you see you don't have to necessarily use a pencil. You could use a tongue depressor. You could use a coffee stirrer just to assess how much relativity do I need? Or if you're trying to progress Steph, you were talking about your patient that you wanted to block, you could start taking away the degree of relative extension to recruit more FDS or FDP. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And we're using other materials too. There's not much in the literature, but Lynn Fian and Sarah Ewald, who was at one time president of IFSHT, off materials. So getting the sewing machine out in the clinic, making some (laughs) strapping. Yeah, it's pretty cool what they've been doing. And just bending some silver wire to make your own like relative motion silver ring, if you will. And they're finding that a soft material has enough stability to hold. Well, well, this isn't for a protective. Right. This would be for someone, maybe an RA patient or someone that needs to wear it for everyday exercise. And they maybe have to wear gloves or they have fragile skin, but you're trying to reclaim some motion or reclaim the posture of the finger. So, So there are some other ideas. I've used... You know, the foam hair curlers, they come in sticks. (laughs) So I've used those and those are at the dollar store and you get like a bunch. I have a bunch of those too. (laughs) They're great. Do they still have them there? Because I haven't. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it's funny because my coworker was like, why do you have these here? I'm like, oh, but let me show you. (laughs) So she's like, oh, I never even thought to use those. I'm like, they're perfect because they're cheap and they they do what you need them to do. Yeah. And a relative motion splint doesn't cost anything. Much. It's, it's reaching to the scrap. You know, we don't want <laughs> certain people to hear us say that, but, <laughs> but it is, it's a quick thing to do. I think when you're trying to protect a tendon, especially an extensor tendon, it takes a little bit of practice to design a comfortable form fitting, keeping the metacarpal arch metacarpal heads in an arch instead of flattening the palm and like this, you know, you try to comfort of the hand in mind. So I think it takes a little bit of practice. There are some helpful tips in the special issue too. One of the articles talks about different things you can consider if you're just new into designing relative motion orthotics, but it's very exciting that there's still, I'm hearing new uses all the time and just today with you guys. So really (laughs) fun to hear from me. Carrie, you're going to be getting a phone call. (laughs) Yeah, I have a feeling. (laughs) I don't mind. I I love it. People contact me, actually. That's how we got so many authors. There were so many papers that we got from people from Malaysia, just, you know, all over the world that we knew their ideas were great ones and probably they wouldn't make it to press without a little help. And so there's a lot of clinical authors that, you know, you're going to be reading in this special issue. 
that's reached one of my personal goals as a therapist mentor is to get their ideas in print. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the evidence. Yeah. So I know we've talked a lot about different ways to use this. We've talked about a few diagnoses. Where do you see this going? We've seen iterations and just even in the last, like you mentioned, 10, 15 years, this has become such a workhorse of our profession. Where do you see it going from here? I don't see it ending. How about that? I'm not sure I really have the vision to see where it's going to go. I do know that we're going to be hearing more about its use in trigger finger. There's a study in Malaysia going on right now by a grad student. I think that we're going to see more relevance to why perhaps it's working for boutonniere and when, and that might become the first choice to manage a boutonniere rather than an afterthought for the surgeons. Because I think boutonniere is a very difficult entity to manage once it's become a full-fledged boutonniere. And I think if we can catch it preventatively, we're going to save a lot of fingers from deformities that are hard to correct. So I, I see that. I'm really excited by the UK study called FIRST, the acronym. Let me see if it's Flexor Injury Repair Splint. It's an NIH trial. Comparing it to different management techniques, especially the Manchester short splint, which is probably fairly well-recognized in Europe, but I'm not so sure how many people are using it in the U.S., so it's nice to compare it with relative motion, and so far I'm hearing positive things on all sides. Getting away from maybe the Norwich regime, which is active but controlled motion, but not functional motion. And the same with the Manchester, you can use your fingers, but you have to exclude the finger that's been repaired, which is kind of hard unless it's the index finger, I think. So those are things that I see. I mean, do you guys have any ideas where it could go? I mean, I love the camptodactyly idea. I love the fact that Dupatron's rheumatoid arthritis patients, just correcting the mechanics of the hand for many of the patients has been great. In my experience, do you have other ideas? I haven't used it for anything else, but the popular, what most people are using it for, definitely exercise and exercise orthosis for both flexion and extension. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me with the exercise, and I worked with Sally Wagen on a paper, and then we have several other ones in this special issue on exercise. I think the big key for that is getting the patients to buy into wearing it for activities that, and here I am, a PT talking about activities that will reinforce why they're wearing the orthosis. And you've got to really work with that patient to make sure they can type or they can do things and why it's so essential that you want them to wear the orthosis during those activities because it reinforces oftentimes it's PIP extension if they've got that lag. Yeah, I've had good compliance because it's easy. It's really not horribly restrictive. It's something you can throw in your pocket. Like it's not complex. It's really easy to put it on and off. So I've had decent compliance with patients following through with that. Yeah. I think that was one of the things that Sally picked up on with her patients that they were taking it off. So we wanted to really make sure that we emphasize that. And 
we've heard there are two articles that are patient perspective on the relative motion. One is photo voice. I don't know if you're familiar with photo voice. It was a passion of joys, the editor of the journal, McDermott. And we have one where the patients actually use their cell phone while they're wearing it. And they take pictures of using their hand with relative motion and describing then in words what it's done for them, what they didn't like about it. So it's direct. You see what they're doing, you hear from them, and it's really immediate feedback on their perspective because we think they're complying. (laughs) We think they like it because it's so (laughs) small and it's simple, you know, low profile, but do we really know? And so two of these articles are starting to address that issue. What is the patient's perspective on these? As a therapist, you know, I just wouldn't do anything else. (laughs) (laughs) When I was working, I know the hand surgeon would call me in to see a patient and he'd say, I know you're going to say relative motion. I said, well, yeah, I really am. (laughs) (laughs) So it got to be kind of a joke, but it just has so many uses. You just have to be open to experimenting with the pencil or a tongue depressor or your goniometer. (laughs) Just stick it in there. Your metal goniometer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It works great. I don't know who to give credit to this. And it may even be something you said, Julia, that at our Texas meeting, but for me to get patients buy-in is telling them you're using it for exercise and think about doing this every time you're moving your hand, it's thousands of exercise repetitions versus you sitting here and just doing an exercise 10 times, 10 times, 10 times a day, even if they're not going to do it 10 times a day, maybe four or five times, they're just wearing it and you're doing the exercise without even thinking about it. Exactly. And who wouldn't want that? Who has set aside three or four times a day for a half hour to sit down and do an exercise? It's not not practical. Right. So who are we fooling? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, (laughs) definitely. So I really have to give credit to everybody along the way because it's been 40 plus years of relative motion. And Dr. Mara is the idea man, Maureen Hardy, which is a familiar name, Sandy Robinson. We're at the Medical College of Virginia, which had the graduate program that I attended for hands. Melissa Hearth, who is in Australia, and she's her doctorate, PhD study. It was just all on relative motion. And she and I were good collaborators together. She's a night owl. I'm an early morning. So we would get up in the morning and we'd edit each other's work and then move on to the next topic. So it's been really fun working with Melissa and Lisa O'Brien, people in Australia, because the Aussies and the New Zealanders are really using it a lot. Relative motion, they're outpacing it the world and in the evidence base. So I really would like to see, since it is a U.S. creation, it would be (laughs) nice to see a little more (laughs) input from United States therapists if we could. But we'll see. I'm willing to help anybody that wants to do that. It's fun for me. We appreciate your contributions and look forward to this special edition. Yes, good. I would love to have some feedback on it, what you think. When will that special edition be out? Every article is online right now, but the hard copy, I'm hoping, fingers crossed, should be out. It should be on display at ASHT. So hopefully it'll be out in September for the great meeting. Yeah. We will look forward to that. 23 different articles. 
Wow. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. That thank you. Great. So you're welcome. Thanks for asking me to comment. Oh, sure. Yeah. It's a good discussion topic. <laughs> well, it thanks is. so much. You're welcome. And we will look forward to that edition. Yes. Thanks so much. All right. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.